Good afternoon. This interview is being conducted for the FIU CFJ project. The interviewer is me, Mikea Brown. I am a resident of Coconut Grove and also working with the company Hope Through Art. And I'm Arte Meta Kroll. I'm a graduate student at Florida International University in the Department of Global Sociocultural Studies. The narrators today with us is Gregory Simpson. George A. Simpson, MD. The interview is taking place at Christ Episcopal Church, and today is uh, May 30th, 2022, and we're in Miami, Florida, Coconut Grove. Okay, so I want to ask you both, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I, uh, I was born in New York City. I grew up in Harlem. Uh, I went to school in Harlem, and... Uh, I enjoyed what New York does uh, expand, and that is uh, exposure to a great variety of influences, cultures, and different uh, experiences which you might not get in a smaller town. I was able to uh, experience and benefit from those sorts of things. I happened to be lucky enough to get a scholarship to high school and college, which was the only way my folks were very poor. Uh, we were on re what they call home relief at that time, or WPA, where my father worked. But I was lucky enough to get a, scholarship to, a scholarship to, uh, City College of New York, and I finished there. And, uh, luckily got into medical school on my first application at the only place probably in the country that I could afford, which was Merritt Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. I finished there. And I did a residency in surgery at that school and in uh, Seattle, Washington. And then I interned in St. Louis at Homer Phillips Hospital, which was the largest black hospital in the country at that time. This was in 1950-51. And I finished my residency at Meharry in 1958 and came to Miami in uh, September, really, uh, July or September of 1958. My wife is a physician and she happened to have started her practice in uh, Miami in 1953. She's a pediatrician. So that made it an easier transition for me to start my practice in the same building that she was in. Uh, so that was, uh, since then I have been working in different capacities while practicing surgery uh, in Dade County and in the state. Oh, and uh, uh, I uh, grew up here in uh, Coconut Grove uh, most of my life, except for the years I uh, lived in Atlanta going to uh, um, Morehouse College and then uh, a couple of years that I was uh, uh, doing real estate in, uh, in Atlanta. I came back to, uh, to South Florida and managed uh, the properties of, uh, of my mother's family, it's a stirrup. Uh, during that time, uh, we, on land that we had, we had built about 20 single family homes, affordable loans, affordable uh, properties for rental. Uh, I believe Citibank at the time was doing that. They, uh, it was a situation where um, that they had been caused redlining and so that they had to uh, 
put money into a community that they had completely ignored for affordable housing with people who were willing to build affordable housing. And so we got that, that opportunity. So I managed those houses for like about 17 years. Um, when the boom in, um, in uh, 2006 to 2008 came, I went to, over to Cape Coral to build houses over there, enjoyed being a developer, wanted to get back into it. Um, the boom was very difficult for, uh, for, for re residents in Coconut Grove who had their own homes. One of the things about Coconut Grove that's different from South Miami and other areas, and a lot of this has to do with my great-grandfather, was that... Uh, um, and I'm sorry, and who is your great-grandfather? Um, E.W.F. Stirrup. Um, Go ahead. Uh, he, he was a, um, one of the founders of the church that we're in. In fact, he donated the land for this church and for the cemetery, which is now, I think, the, uh, the, one of the only black cemeteries that's been maintained through its entire history here in Dade County. And um, he had built, he, he was a very large property owner who also uh, was willing to sell his rental properties to the people that he was, uh, uh, who were his clientele over time, which is the only way they could get land and a building. And so that's why so many people in Coconut Groves, it used to be, this, Coconut Grove is where um, yard men and, and, uh, and teachers Black teachers could buy a home, and the reason they could buy a home is because uh, he was willing to sell homes over a 20-year period to people. Otherwise, they couldn't get any financing at all. In fact, uh, I was going to speak about my father. His place that he financed was, uh, you can tell that story, uh, I think it was probably in 50, before I was born, so 55, 56, or 57, uh, was like one of the first places that got financed from a savings and loan. Mm -hmm. because and, and where was that? I'm sorry. That, that's our, at our, our address on Percival okay. here in Coconut Grove. Because black people in this country, up until the very late and early 50s, did not have any access to traditional financing like um, a, a Leave it to Beaver family. Okay, so there's that. So your family has been in Coconut Grove for a long time, and I'm curious to know how you've seen the Grove change and how you've, what the community was before as you were each, you know, when, when you first moved here in um, the 1950s and when you were first born compared to what it is now. You want to go with that? Oh, again, okay. what was the question? How, how has the community changed since you first came how here? How much of what? How has the community changed since you first came here? Into what it is now. Well, you know, Coca Grove is unique in many ways. And one of the most important uh, ways that it is different is that the original inhabitants of Coconut Grove are from the Bahamas. And as black people from the Bahamas, they were not burdened by the 260 years of slavery and uh, decimation, destruction of their culture, language, and, uh, and societal motives. Uh, motives. So uh, they approached the American 
uh, home lion differently from what would have been the approach of people who had been enslaved for 260, 250 years. And uh, that made a difference. It made a difference, particularly, uh, as I remember, in the 1917, when uh, Ku Klux Klansmen came to Coconut Grove to round up blacks to constrict, constrict them into the army. And uh, those black Bahamians, independent as they were with the history of independence a longer time in the Bahamas than in this country, got their guns out and they turned those folks back. And we did not have the same sort of ravages in Coconut Grove because of that sort of independence that there were experience in other areas of the country, like for instance in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, so that history of relative independence and, and uh, society, identification with culture has helped the original or had helped the original Bahamians to survive and thrive in the early 1900s. E.W.F. Stirrup Sr. was a great uh, pioneer in that uh, area, saying that if you don't own a home, you don't have a stake in the community. So it was his effort to increase home ownership as much as possible, which enabled a lot of the people to own their homes. He, uh, I remember he worked for the uh, Deering family uh, I think in their coconut fields. And he, instead of getting paid, he got paid in land, uh, which was a foresight. And uh, so that helped him to develop, uh, to accumulate the land that he used later on for building houses and selling them and renting them to Bahamians, affordable housing. And, and I just want to correct, this is Mr. Stirrup, correct? What's that? And this was Mr. Stirrup, correct? E.W. Stirrup Sr., yes. Yes, yes. That, that's who you're speaking of, correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. He came here in uh, 19, the early, early 1900s, and he built his first home here in, 1990, in uh, 1897, which still is extant and has been renovated to last like forever now. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's probably, it was the oldest inhabited home in Dade County, in the Copa Grove. Yeah, that was his house. Now, before you go on, and I just want to ask, was he the one who started the shotgun houses, or was he the one that started the shotgun houses? Well, the Bahamian style was what you might call shotgun at that time. And that was the type of houses that he built, yes. And, and do you know why? Hmm? Do you know why it was uh, that format? Well, for one thing, uh, they had enough knowledge of hurricanes and weather to have these homes survive the hurricanes that destroyed other parts of the city or the county, which did not have the, the, the hurricane knowledge that they had. To build a shotgun house is something that will enable you to uh, withstand a hurricane, whereas if you did not have the pass-through of the, of the winds, you would have been destroyed. So we could kind of say they kind of developed a way that the winds could come through but be able to pass right. through it. It didn't take the whole home with it. That was one of the features of a, of a shotgun home, that it could withstand the terrific wind 
uh, forces of a hurricane, yes. So it wasn't that you could shoot straight through the home and go out the That's back what they door? Call it. The they call it shotgun because <laughs> you could take a shotgun and shoot through it and not have a person. Yeah, I, I remember the, the, also the way the wind could go through. You couldn't have air conditioning back then. And uh, uh, my grandmother and older people who used to be, who used to sit on their um, porches, which you don't do anymore, uh, d described it, you know, as Bahamian style houses. Shotgun houses really gets, it's a, the term, uh, uh, like another black term, it's mammy-made, mostly because they are old houses built from pre-World War uh, II uh, type houses, but people were still living there. Uh, and especially um, most, most of the older houses were gone, but the powerful thing is folks owned their own land and were able to build concrete block houses in a way that they were. So, so that, uh, that, that economics since uh, uh, was was countered a little in 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 Coconut Grove, um, yeah. Uh, my memories of Coconut Grove. I um, like I said, I grew up here, and I um, and I remember. But but I used to spend some of my young teenage years uh, going to visit friends in Nassau, mm -hmm. and I always thought of Coconut Grove. I, I could use a, um, a a television term in my ear. It was sort of a um, a black Mayberry. So everybody knew each other and everybody looked out for each other. Uh, my father often mentions uh, uh, Hillary, Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton is misquoted and says it takes a, a village to raise a child. The, the actual and closer uh, African term, it takes a whole village. And, um, and by a whole village, that means not only everybody in it, the good and the bad, but everybody looking out for each other. Um, uh, I, one of the things I, I noticed about Miami and in Coconut Grove is a good example of that there there wasn't a black police force, uh, and there wasn't uh, and the only time white policemen came there was either to harass or arrest somebody uh, from out there. Um, law enforcement was pretty much done via the community. That's why I used to think of it as as, as Mayberry. You never saw really uh, Andy or Barney busting into people's homes or anything. They knew their neighbors and they knew if the, something was done wrong uh, that they would be there to fix it and they had that authority of law. Um, people growing up had that. Uh, and you know, prior to the, to the uh, mid-40s, uh, you know, there were not black police officers when they were only in the city of, My of Miami were called patrolmen and could not arrest if they did something wrong in the black area, could not arrest a white person. Uh, and in communities, small communities like uh, like Coconut Grove, uh, uh, pretty much your neighbors were going to to uh, to know who you did, and then they're going to call on you. So you can be a kid and steal an apple and get three whoopings by the time you get home because everybody who knows that you know the, the grapevine would go would, would go on there and everybody had the right to correct you and then your parents had the right to scare the hell out of you so so there was that that's what this community was like it changed as the whole country changed um, 
So is it safe to say when I ask, do you think that's one of the threats that uh, happened in Coconut Grove was the upchange of the community as far as the residents and neighbors? When you, when, and, and let me clarify that, because I hear you saying that, you know, everybody knew everybody and, you know, your neighbors, it took the neighbors to make the community. But do you think that's what threatened Coconut Grove to what it is today, that the neighbors and the, the community was changed because of the residents and everybody weren't so neighborly anymore? Gentrification changed this area the same way gentrification changed Harlem uh, or, or other 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 places. Um, 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 properties that were below market uh, uh, because it was a black area, all of a sudden shoots up within the course of a decade to being, as someone mentioned in an earlier interview, a million dollars a lot. I mean, I quite in that, but, but close in the range where you'd have to build uh, a, uh, you'd have to sell a house over a million dollars because of the amount of money that you paid for the, for the land. And uh, uh, some people sell out more often who traditionally had it, but, uh, but there, there are a lot of different people competing for this and gentrification. You, you have, uh, uh, we, we sold property to Venezuelans who uh, uh, who were looking to uh, to just get a long-term visa and weren't as concerned with the property. Uh, they've essentially, uh, after a while, uh, put uh, put duplexes on it. But so you have foreign, you have uh, snowbirds from Canada uh, who buy property and maybe live here three or four months of the year. Um, and uh, but the people who would be during those three or four months who would be their, uh, their maids or their drivers or the teachers of their children if they're in public school uh, can't afford to live in Coconut Grove. And, and for you, Dr. Simpson? Well, gentrification is the name of the process which changed. Property values were elevated because of the increase in uh, value of the land. People with money moving in who formerly had moved to outlying areas, now got tired of the commute, commuting time and expense, wanted to live nearer to the, in a, nearer to, uh, to Miami itself. And so Coconut Grove became a prime target for gentrification. And uh, the residents, many of them growing older and their children having moved out, could not afford the uh, rents or the expenses of living in the same place, and they often sold because uh, more money than they'd ever seen in their lives was presented to them for selling, and they sold because they couldn't afford it. And uh, so gentrification has really been the moving factor which has changed the tenor, the uh, living style, the very livelihoods of the, of the original residents of Coconut Grove mostly black people from the Bahamas. So gentrification is the human-made um, change that has changed Coconut Grove, but I'm also curious in terms of natural disasters, in terms of hurricanes and other forces over the years, um, 
in your memory, how did they affect the community and how did the community come together in those circumstances? Well, uh, yeah, the uh, weather change and the severity of hurricanes, you know, also had its great effect on uh, removal, really, displacement of original and uh, ethnic residents in Coconut Grove. This is true. And it had a great effect. The trend is still there. It's still happening. It's happening today, perhaps maybe at a greater rate than it was back in the uh, 80s and 90s, because a, a 30 to 40 uh, year period of no growth and degeneration, uh, disintegration really, of the uh, property values and uh, lifestyle of the Bahami, Bahamians. Uh, all of this was manifested as part of the gentrification process, which is still, like I say, still going on. I think the term is climate refugees. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to something that, uh, about EWF, stir up my great grandfather. Uh, he, he made money not just uh, because he got that option of, uh, of uh, and, and, and by the way, that option w was actually used to be described by, I'm heard by whites, is it's not good to give a Negro too much money. And so they would make that choice of land and um, uh, land over and, and money. But EWF also, uh, he not only built these homes and so sold homes, which is what he's often known for, but he became a millionaire three times in his life. And one of the second ways, after just acquiring land and building homes, um, when, uh, when the Deerings and other people were building properties on the water in, in, in Coconut Grove, but the waters, but, but supplies still had to come in from the, um, uh, from the Miami River, uh, he was the one who had the liberty here. And he had the liberty because he had mule teams. And he had mule teams opposed to other people because other people's mules came from up north, from Georgia sometimes all the way. And he had the foresight to get his mules from West Cuba. So he would bring mules from West Cuba because he's a Bahamian and knew the type of animals that you need in a tropical climate, in a subtropical climate. You, you take them from West Cuba up to Miami, hey, we are the subtropics, this is great. Well, you bring a mule from Georgia down here, they die in one mosquito season in one marsh to the point where you had to have uh, men guard his mules because he's the only one who had a mule team. And how he made his money and how we got the, the prop, the, that particular place, that high elevation place where his home is, is because, okay, that's fine. Um, if you're gonna make me, if you're gonna pay me half in land, I get to choose the land. And he knew as a Bahamian, you know, what the high land was. And hey, if that's the case, and if you don't want to sell me that land, well, you know, you can go get somebody else just to clear it. But you know, you know, I have the only mule team and the only liberty. So he, he got a lot of high land. See, a remarkable thing about him is. Uh, he had a third grade education. He never learned to read or write, but he became a millionaire. 
the first black millionaire in this area. And uh, he was two or three times a millionaire because he was swindled out of it because he did, you know, he was uh, cuckolded it into signing or not signing because he did not have the legal backing at least once in his uh, life. So, But uh, for a third grade education, not reading or writing, he was quite a remarkable individual. The foresight in land, home building, and businesses. So, One of the places where he didn't sign, I want to clear the record, quite often it's heard that the charter for the city of Miami was signed by almost an equal number of blacks and whites. And the story goes that EWF signed that charter, but EWF stirrup was against that charter because he knew the political ramifications. They were only asking for black men because the ratios were that equal, which is also uh, in that situation my father was talking about. That was like the first one when blacks were gonna be conscripted in the army. There was a second one in, um, in uh, the hurricane of 26. And you've heard those stories about, uh, about uh, black folks, who, well, you're gonna come down here or, or you know, basically we're gonna shoot you. Well, that didn't happen in Coconut Grove because we were a tight community and everybody had a shotgun next to their front door because they'd already had that experience twice before. Uh, the, the, the one in the inscription, that's the first one, the 26, and I think there was, a, I don't know if there was one after, the 26 might have been the last one, one in between. But since the ratios were numbers, like you said, you, they needed 100 men and they didn't have 100 white men. So, so, so he didn't actually, and so to clear that up for one of these things, no, he voted against that because he knew once the city of Miami would be incorporated, a lot of other things would be incorporated too, like segregation. You know, blacks had access to the beach before there was a city of Miami, and they didn't have access to the beach after that. Okay, so we talk about disaster in many ways, and somehow, I don't know, we always go to hurricanes and storms, but I wanna kinda backtrack, and I know it used to be a disaster with food, you know? And I know back then, sugar canes and, you know, all those things were popular and, and many people lost their lives paving the way with sugar canes from Key West to here to Coconut Grove. How did Coconut Grove, uh, you know, experience with food? It, was it any food shortages or did you guys ever get try to get taken over besides the murals uh, for food here? Well, you know, I'm not too conversant with that. Uh, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, my experience as a resident of Florida has been in the medical field and mostly in the city of Miami and the state. And only recently, more because of a Father Gibson, really. When I first came here, I was married by Father Gibson in Christ Church. And uh, I had just come from Clarksdale, Mississippi, where Martin Luther King, first time I met or heard from him was in my last year of resi residency. And I came here with the fervent belief that I was gonna be, you know, Martin Luther King was gonna be my model. The closest thing I could see to that here was Father Gibson. So I became a member of the NAACP and later became president of the NAACP because of Father Gibson's influence. 
But he was uh, one of the people who was the uh, caretaker, if you will, of the welfare and culture of the Bahamians in Coconut Grove. He himself was a Bahamian of Bahamian uh, descent, uh, but he was, he was extremely important in preserving the livelihood and uh, well-being, uh, as well as preserving land and lifestyle of Bahamians in Coconut Grove, Father Gibson. His wife, Thelma, equally active and still <laughs> active. In fact, she was the one that got me to come to Coconut Grove to become the president, the uh, chairman of the Coconut Grove Local Development Corporation. And that was my first direct uh, role in Coconut Grove's uh, welfare. Uh, and uh, we wanted to build businesses in that development, but we were not that successful. However, we did use the money to build housing and we did build several affordable housing. I think it'd be 24 to 30 houses out of the money that we got from the, But again, affordable housing was one of the things that I have always been interested in and uh, that the Coconut Grove Local Development Corporation was interested in also. Um, you were talking about the- uh, food, food crisis. Uh, did you guys experience any in Coconut not, Grove? You know, I was born in 59 and so not, uh, I don't recall, that being the case in, in my lifetime here. Um, I do recall, though, a few lessons I remember learning from uh, Hurricane Andrew about, uh, about how a community can be. And, I, and one of, the, one of the, the strongest memories I remember, so about, after about three days of not having any national, um, uh, you know, no power and no national, this is Hurricane Andrew, the National Guard did come into Coconut Grove but they immediately they passed through. They didn't. They didn't stop. Uh, they, they came. They, they didn't in the black area. There's actually we described this. I think there's there's the grove. There's the grove, and then there is um, there's the grove, and there is uh, the village. I live in the grove, but <laughs> there's the village. Um, when the National Guard came in, and, and, and they went to Commodore Plaza, they went to Coconut Grove Bank, which had a, a brand, corner branch, and then the bank itself, and they uh, they policed those areas. Mm -hmm. You know, they were there to keep looting out. They, they did they did to keep lootings out, and I guess that bank vault that was there. They didn't bring in any water. They didn't help anybody who was stuck in their homes. That was individual neighbors did that. Um, and uh, and that was a, the, one of the examples where I was most proud of my of my community, and also things that you you have to individually do yourselves. Um, um, there were uh, when they were hooking up power lines all, all on Charles Avenue. If your uh, weather tower, you know the metal tower there was broken, half of them were all broken. Um, then you weren't going to get hooked up, and it'd probably be another month or two before you uh, you, you got uh, your power on. Uh, on that street and on four other streets, um, um, I'm going to say neighbors, but but I happen to know where you needed those those hooks because we had five homes on there. So we got the ones for our properties, but we got ones for our neighbors too. And then we had some electricians in the community put those on so that when they came, they'd have power. 
you know, we and we just charge you. This is what it's going to cost us to get that. We are fortunate that this we're in South Florida because you can go into Little Haiti and there's somebody in the, not Little Haiti in, in Little Havana, and there's somebody who has a shop who's got a license to actually make those toads and was making them. So, but if you didn't, if you weren't aware, didn't have the resources, that, that was my day job back then. So, so I picked up maybe about forty at, at a time. About uh, 20 that we used, another 20 for other neighbors whose towers are broken, and um, local electricians, licensed and unlicensed, put those on so that when the power came, we would need help. Uh, I remember that we back then we still did have an ice house on US one, and that was that was a lifesaver too. I never saw any um, uh, not even I need the term violence. I always saw the the best of people. Uh, at that particular time, at least in Andrew, and, and it reminded you that 90% of people are good. And in a crisis like that, the good shows out in 90% of the people, and you can be, re you can be um, um, have your faith in humanity come back. The other 10% are going to be the worst at, the, at, at, at times like that. And so you have to be aware of that, but that's actually the ratio in life. And most of the time, the the uh, the ninety percent though are keep silent until the a crisis happens. And it's often when there's slow crises, like a lot of things that happen in this country now, uh, 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 gun violence, drugs, voting rights, which we which I, my father fought for, and now are, are in peril again and the rights of, there are three women in this room, the rights of women to their own, the integrity of their own body. Yeah, got to fight that fight again. Yeah. Um, just remembering that 90% of the people are good. 90% of the people want background checks. I don't even want to make this that, but for, 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 um, for, for gun sales, you know. So. They want it, but not bad enough. <laughs> So, so you mentioned Andrew. I mean, more recently we had Irma, and so I was wondering, um, was the Grove affected by Irma, or was it more affected by Andrew? And if it was affected also by Irma, did you see a difference? Because you know, ninety-two to two thousand seventeen, the neighborhood I think by that time had changed. I'm sure quite a bit. And so, did you notice between a difference between those two periods in terms of how the community was able to cope with the hurricane? Um. I don't know about Irma so much. I, I do know when uh, the, the two Bahamian islands got uh, covered over, this was the center for most of the county for relief. Um, let's just clarify, Christ Episcopal, Christ Episcopal Church. Church. Yeah, so where we, where we are. Uh, um, because the, uh, I think our, our, the, the, the minister here at the time was, was that, and, I, and also the... Um, the councilman from the Bahamas who lives in Miami attends this church and was a friend. And so uh, that community came together to help another community. And that's a good example of where your faith in people gets gets reestablished. And that happens a lot uh, here in, in, in South Florida. I think more individual people, the Neighbors from Neighbors group, not only do that locally because we get hit by storms, but we also, I've seen more people in South Florida uh, go out and 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 send uh, um, 
to for Jamaicans, not only from the Jamaican community, but other people there as well, because we know what it's like to not have your power on for three weeks, four weeks, and uh, and and the uh, the real uh, things of life, the necessities of life, not being available, and and it's still not as bad as you know what's going on in Ukraine and other places, but uh, but uh, yeah, the, um, it, it's a lesson we people quickly forget, and. Uh, well, to wrap things up on this first interview, uh, Dr. Simpson, another disaster I think we can talk about is how COVID came by storm and just, you know, took out so many people and so many communities. Um, and I know back then polio was something that you guys had to deal with as well, too. So just looking at, you know, the different outbreaks and pandemics that you guys had to experience, can you elaborate on how you guys, Coconut Grove, got through that during your time and now? Well, you know, the response of this country to the COVID epidemic opened my eyes once more to the deep divisions within this country and the abiding, deep-seated animosity of the haves for the, against the have-nots and the uh, prevalence and uh, persistence of racism as a basic tenet of thinking in too many Americans. This country has still not agreed to acknowledge its faults along the lines of racial segregation and white supremacy. And as long as we do not, we cannot have the society that we want. The unfortunate part is that there are too many otherwise good thinking people who are silent when it comes to that basic instinct of us against them. And until we overcome that, this country cannot be what it could be or should be. And this was so evident in the treatment of this country by the, at that time, President of the United States, who believed in my mind, he believed that if he just let it run its course, it would kill off more black and, and uh, brown people than it would whites, and it'd come out okay. Because, you know, <laughs> it, it's insane to think that a person of his supposed intelligence would do that. But what is more insane is that too many people went along with him. So it opened up my eyes a great deal more to the deep-seated uh, insecurity of whites. And this, again, was part of that last hurrah they're afraid that uh, uh, population density will overcome and suppress their power. And so they're willing to do anything, including suicide of their own people in many cases, uh, to maintain power. That's what we're seeing now. I did not think that that could happen after the experiences with polio and uh, uh, malaria, and uh, especially polio, of course. Uh, but there, that, those lessons were not inter internalized sufficiently to save us from one million deaths, many of which were 
avoidable. Uh, we still got a long way to go. I still fear for this country's existence as a democracy as long as that attitude, that deep-seated attitude, is allowed to flourish by the silence of those who profess otherwise but act in a way that would support a racial supremacy. If I, if I can speak, I think at a period of time that Dad was also referring to was the AIDS epidemic. During the AIDS epidemic, uh, my father was the director of Jackson's uh, Health Clinic at the time. And that was located where? Uh, one of them. The, the, but yours, the one, the one that you were at was uh, was the, the, the one on Twelfth uh, Avenue, right? Oh, the main, the main. The main hospital, the one. No, that's no, the oh, no, no. I was attendant at that at those clinics, but uh, with the help of Dr. Lynn Carmichael uh, at the University of Miami, I was a medical director of the formation of the Department of Family Medicine, which was at the forefront of bringing complete, comprehensive medical care to the people of the of the country. I think we were the uh, fifth. Uh, family Health Center, which was uh, uh, which was uh, given a grant by the government, but we were the first to form the Department of Family Medicine, making family medicine or general practitioner medicine a specialty. Oh wow! Yeah, because you know the the, the general practitioner was always at the bottom of the heap. Everybody got the money, but he got none because he didn't have that specialization designation. And uh, Dr. Lynn Carmichael, by forming the Department of Family Medicine and having it uh, agreed to be, uh, having it developed as a specialty in medicine, elevated the position and the financial benefits to general practitioners and family practitioners. Yeah, and I was happy to be a part of that development. Yeah, that's but, but during the AIDS epidemic, you were at Jackson, uh, and that's when the the, the epidemic was, that's when the epicenter it wow. was, in, was in Miami, and you were in the clinic that was help, that was actually treating the most patients at the time. Well, and during those first three years, I'm gonna quote you here, it seemed, you would say, that the current federal policy seems to be that we're gonna hire more ambulance drivers, and that is gonna be our solution to the AIDS epidemic used to say that, quoting, out of frustration of having to deal with that and your staff being afraid, because that was before we had any cures or any medicines, and staff members dealing with AIDS patients and needles were in danger. Well, those are some uh, unfortunate days. Yeah, they were. Unfortunate days, the AIDS epidemic, again. But even the response to the AIDS epidemic, to me, was not as uh, despicable as the True. reaction of the COVID epidemic. True. But to politicize it to the extent that it was politicized was a, a despicable mark on the American character. Hmm, still is. But though you still hear them connecting the two, because when COVID first came out, they referred it to the epidemic like the AIDS. You know, they said it was just like when AIDS came out, the epidemic was so big that COVID was similar to the same. So, you know, it, 
they do just saying some people do kind of refer COVID like how the AIDS ep- epidemic was. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Blaming it on the Haitians, blaming it on the homosexuals, yeah. In, in, in more modern case, blaming it on the Chinese. Yeah, and well, well, let's just clarify this, and I just want to clarify these last two. Um, and you're practicing during that time of the AIDS ep- epidemic. Who did you guys treat the most? Because we do still keep that stereotype that it was, uh, you know, the gays or it was blacks or it was this particular group of people. Well, uh, unfortunately, the highest proportion of uh, victims of AIDS were homosexual males, particularly because of the transmission by the uh, sexual lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, there was, in fact, a reason for, uh, in your mind, segregating out the most probable victims or transmitters of the disease. But the extent to which they were ostracized and uh, avoided and segregated from good care was, again, not a good mark on American medical care. That's true. Well, I think just to ask my final question, um, you spoke about how what happened with what happened with COVID makes you fear for American democracy and the changes that are happening in Coconut Grove with gentrification and everything else, how that's changing the community. Taking it all together, what do you see as the biggest threats to the community? What do you anticipate those being? The biggest threat to the community? You mean in regard to disease? Oh, well, in regards to just everything that's happening in Coconut Grove today with disease, with just social change, what do you see as the threat to what Coconut Grove is right now? The greatest threat to Coconut Grove is the threat that uh, imperils the whole country, and that is a a growing disregard for the true principles of democracy and the acceptance of a potential fascistic dictatorship to the benefit of those who are white. That's what I think. Well, I, I want to give the exact quote of King, but when good people do nothing, you know, evil flourishes. Well, thank you both, and I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, and we will close it out. Um, But again, I thank you for your knowledge and your history and, and setting things straight for us that we did not know and giving us a little more clarity than what we did know. And I really appreciate just giving us your time on Memorial Day to help us with this. And I'll pass it over to you to close out, Artie. Thank you both so much for your time. It was an honor and a pleasure to hear your stories and to learn from you. So thank you so much. It's been our pleasure.